Hello, and welcome to another episode of Not If I Reboot You First. We're a podcast where we take popular properties and reboot them before Hollywood has a chance to. It's a little bit like brainstorming fanfiction. I'm Lindsay, and I use she, her pronouns. And I'm Tanner, and I use they, them pronouns. So, it is finally, after about a month, my week. After 18 years. (laughs) It's been 85 years. (laughs) So, my week, back in my wheelhouse. Back to the historical drama. Yeah, yeah, because that's what we're going to be rebooting. The, what, the, the entirety of history? No. Oh. A part of history. It's called... Okay. So the manga, it actually goes by two names. It is called Red River, also known in the fan community as Anatolia Story. It is a manga from the, uh, let's see, mid-90s went to 2002. So it's got aesthetic. Oh boy. I have no idea... Unless this is somehow a Hitalia spinoff, I know nothing about this. <laughs> Tanner, it's one of my favorite mangas. I've never heard of this before. Also, I thought your favorite manga was Vinland Saga. That's another favorite, but this is the favorite. The manga that basically started it all for me. Okay. Yeah. Here's Lindsay's journey into manga and anime. So I had been watching anime since I was a wee little child. A little four-year-old. No. Yeah, 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 four. Because that's when Sailor Moon was airing on YTV, and I used to basically chase around the cat while pretending to be Sailor Moon. That's adorable. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, I watched anime and all that growing up as a kid, not really knowing what anime was until I was a lot older and realizing, oh yeah, that's a very distinctive style from regular old North American cartoons. Yeah, I was pretty slow on the uptake too. Yeah, I think it was about middle school when I finally like started watching Inuyasha and turned into the insufferable teen who's like, it's not cartoons, mom. It's anime. It's anime, mom. Like, And it's not a phase. Yeah, it's not a phase. Sorry, mom. <laughs> I, I was the kid who was like, how come, how come Japan is getting all the new Digimon episodes first? What does Japan have to do with Digimon? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Which is wild, considering when you look back on Digimon, it was like one of the few animes who, even in the dub, they were like, yeah, we're Japanese people in Japan. Yeah. Yeah, like, for the longest time, I just thought, like, going back to Sailor Moon, I thought the Sailor Moon was just another superhero cartoon, because that was about the same time that you had, like, Batman and uh, the Superman cartoon. And X-Men. And X-Men, yeah. I didn't watch X-Men. I vaguely remember Batman. Yeah, because I didn't actually start watching superhero cartoons until Justice League happened. The best superhero cartoon out there. Oh yeah, unarguably the best superhero cartoon. Yeah. Um, I feel like X the X-Men 90s cartoon and Sailor Moon had very similar aesthetics. Yeah. Lots of like pastel neons. Yeah, mostly that. When I was a bit older, middle school age, and my parents trusted me enough that during like nicer weather I could get myself to school. I would even sometimes, like, ride my bike to school, la gasp, (laughs) (laughs) because, like, I didn't live that far, but this being BC, it felt far going back, because I had to go up a mountain, basically. Yeah, and you had to dodge bears the entire time. Yeah, and 
Catholic school kids don't know how to cross streets. Yeah, it seems to be a thing with Catholic school kids. They just don't know how to cross streets. <laughs> Bears at least know how to use a crosswalk. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, my middle school wasn't that far from the community center, which also had the public library. And bless this public library. They had manga. They had quite a bit of manga. There had to have been a librarian there who was a complete nerd. Oh, yeah, because that would be, like, the nichest of niches down in there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is still, like, right at the time when uh, they were still flipping manga. Oh, wow. Well, I think it was just as that practice was ending. So, like, flipping manga for our younger listeners who don't remember this dark time. um, (laughs) When manga first started coming to North America, because Japanese has been right to left... North American publishers, like, I think the first ones were Dark Horse. Yeah. Dark Horse was important. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just looking at my manga collection, trying to see if I... I don't think I have anything that old. I think everything I have is fairly modern. I have a couple issue, uh, vintage issues of uh, Revolutionary Girl Utena. Ooh, wow. Yeah. I managed to get them from Tramps, because Tramps used to sell, like, vintage manga. It was great. Nice. Yeah, so in the dark old days, they used to uh, flip the manga from the Japanese reading style, I guess, of right to left to yeah. left to right. Because, yeah. like, because since the language is right to left, the books are also right to left. Yeah, it was okay. Like, I guess with primitive computers, it's not that hard to flip the image. I mean, yeah, you can flip the image, and then you can just rewrite all the because t- you have to rewrite the text in the bubbles, anyways. Yeah, but then it also means that if there's any text that's part of the image, that also gets flipped. So, yeah. like, the the example that everyone probably knows, because they put it into almost every manga these days anyways, you open a yeah. manga, and if you open it from the English direction, there's a big thing that says, Stop! You're reading this in the wrong direction! We do, you gotta do a flip! Because if you, don't, if you don't flip your perspective, then the manga has to flip its perspective, and then the person wearing a shirt that says May is now wearing a shirt that says Yam. <laughs> Yo, now I just want to get a shirt that says Yam. Yeah. You could probably find that at one of um, the French department stores here. What? Oh, is it like one of those fake bougie stores that we went into? Yeah, Simon's, probably. Oh, no, yeah, oh, yeah, you're right. Simon's did have the really weird stuff. It had, like, a completely bedazzled sweater with a picture of a MasterCard, but instead of saying MasterCard, it said, like, CAPITALISM! <laughs> Trying to be woke. That's That's what I need. A fake deep sweater that is so reflective that I'm going to blind any oncoming traffic. (laughs) Don't wear it on a sunny day. You will cause an accident. (laughs) (laughs) So, anyway, during this glorious heyday of my youth when I was absolutely insufferable and listening to Avril Lavigne... (laughs) (laughs) Mom, why have you got to go and make things so complicated? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dad has described me. I would have these mood swings, like fucking Reagan from The Exorcist. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can go zero to 60 pretty fast, but back when I was 14, oh boy. Lindsay, you have to stop spending all your allowance on mangoes. Mother, they're called manga! <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. 
my parents were waiting for me to like crab walk upside down down the stairs. (laughs) 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 So anyway, I discovered this great manga called Red River. And being the budding history nerd I was, it hit so many like things for me because it's set during it's set okay, the settings. First of all, it's kind of a proto isekai. Nice. Back in also those glory days when isekai was a staple of the shoujo genre. So those were the girls' mangas. Modern boys are dumb. I'm going to date a boy from the past who is somehow <laughs> less sexist? Question mark. Well, I don't know. When you travel back to the fucking Bronze Age about three to five thousand years ago, things can get actually kind of alien. Okay. Yeah. Like, we're talking about cultures where sometimes human sacrifice is okay. You know, it's just something you gotta do. Yeah. Look, sometimes you live in a culture that believes that that the Earth itself is an eldritch abomination whose every single joint has, like, an alligator maw. And if you don't feed it blood, it will eat the sun. Man, sometimes my joints feel like alligator maws, and I'm only 26. (laughs) Yeah. Also, I had just watched a video, like, the other night about, um, yeah, it was the mind creation story about, like, the time that there were, like, five different sons and one cried blood. Yeah. (laughs) Mesoamerican myth is heavy. It's heavy metal. All all mythology is pretty heavy metal, and then Christianity had to come and make everything boring. Yeah. But we're not here for that today. No, we're talking about a pretty heavy metal culture anyway. The Hittites. Because, okay, when I say it was hidden, a whole bunch of stuff that was, like, right for me right when I was 14. So I was just coming off of a... I went through the usual, like, dinosaurs, Egypt, Greece, Rome. I had a shit ton of books about Greece, Rome, and ancient Egypt. Now, Were you ever a horse girl? A what? A horse girl? Yeah, yeah. Especially when I was about six and I was constantly asking my parents for a pony. <laughs> I will say that the one episode where Lisa from The Simpsons got a pony did not help. I imagine so. Now, corollary to that, did you ever develop into a dragon girl? I had a brief fling with dragons. I was more into, like, witches. Oh, okay. Nice. So, anyway, the general nature of this manga, it I've been thinking about it recently. It is, like, the manga equivalent to Outlander. Okay, yeah, that actually, I mean, I don't, I know the basic premise of Outlander, so just going off of that, yeah, that sounds pretty familiar. Yeah. Uh, for people who don't know, and I don't know how you've missed Outlander, like, you don't have to watch it, but, like... I, I think it's pretty easy to miss an Outlander. Eh, yeah, Because okay. even, like, yeah, it's got a show on, but it's on, like, Stars, and Stars isn't, like, on the tip of everyone's tongue. It's no HBO. Yeah, but it's also, like, once the star season has wrapped up, they jump over to Netflix. Bruh, there's so much stuff on Netflix. Okay. There are There are seasons of shows that I love that I haven't even gotten to. Like, it's probably gonna be a full year... From now until I get to the new season of Mystery Science Theater. Fair. So, anyway. Red River. Uh, The general promise. You have your regular high school girl named uh, Yuri Suzuki. Uh, She gets her first kiss from her uh, crush one day. And then all of a sudden, the water tries to kill her. (laughs) Dang. 
Yeah. So, like, she'll be walking down the street. Like, this is... Japan school year starts in, like, uh, like February, March-ish. Okay. So everything's melting. There's a lot of puddles. It's also raining. And then she'll be, like, walking down the street or whatever, and then suddenly something will try and grab her and drag her through the puddle. Uh, she's taking a bath, and, like, she nearly drowns. Yikes. And then finally, she's at school one day, and she's, like, standing, she's talking to her crush. Behind her is a fish tank. And arms come out of the fish tank and try to grab her. Great! <laughs> yeah. So she finally gets pulled through a portal in space and time and winds up in the Hittite Empire. And the reason why she was pulled through wasn't because of some special prophecy or because she was the chosen one or anything. Well, she was a chosen one in that the queen of the Hittite Empire wants Yuri's virgin blood as a sacrifice so that she can make a potion to poison all of the other princes in the line of succession ahead of her son. Damn! Hi, Cersei! Oh my gosh! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah! Luckily, though, Yuri gets rescued by one of the very handsome princes of the Hittite Empire, one, Caleb Mershelly, who is actually based off of a real-life guy. Was he as handsome in real life, though? Don't know. There's no surviving pictures. Well, why not? I don't know. Why can't we get our historical Bashonen? (laughs) Like, they didn't actually find the Hittite Empire, or rediscover the Hittite Empire, until, like, the 1880s, and that was... When I say rediscover, I mean, like, Europeans rediscovered the Hittite Empire. Um, Hittite Empire. Pretty cool, because the Bronze Age was dominated in the Eastern Mediterranean by... I would say about six civilizations over time, because a couple fell uh, earlier than others. The big ones that people knew by the late 1800s were Egypt, because, yeah, they are very hard to ignore. The Babylonians, because they were super around. Um, The Assyrians, because they do not want to be ignored. And the Sumerians. And by sheer knowledge through the Bible, they knew about people's like various other uh, ancient Near Eastern civilizations and the Phoenicians. Uh, they had recently rediscovered uh, the Mycenaeans and the Minoans. Yeah. And when Heinrich Schliemann had discovered Troy, even though he probably destroyed the lair that he was looking for. Yeah, there's like nine or so layers of Troy. And given that this is very early on in archaeology as an actual science, um, there it provided some great lessons like, uh, don't use dynamite, kids. Oh, no. Yeah. You fools. You fool. Also, Troy is like an onion. It has layers. <laughs> yeah. It literally does. There are nine. Possibly more. So, yes, we the have to Iliad... go deeper. <laughs> so, yes, the Iliad is at least partially true. There probably was a big war that was fought there because this is where the Hittite Empire comes in. So, people were finding a whole bunch of like clay tablets clearly written on, and eventually linguists had managed to decipher what most of them were saying. And there was references to this empire in what is now Anatolia, which is like most of Turkey. Okay. And they're like, hmm, there's got to be something out in the middle of there, but we don't know what it is. So eventually um, a bunch of German scientists went out there with permission from the Ottoman Empire to uh, 
a town called Boazkoy, which is close to the what's now the modern capital of Turkey, Ankara. Mm-hmm. And they find a massive ruin of a city. Massive. Like, this takes up an entire plateau of a mountain. So, eventually, like, they're uncovering stuff, and uh, they call it the Hittite Empire, uh, partially because that's, it's a name referenced in the Bible to a civilization from roughly that area. Not at the same time that the civilization was actually around, but they were, co- whoever that civilization was, they were calling themselves Hittites. Okay. Um, or at least the ancient uh, Israelites were calling them Hittites. One or the other. Okay. Yeah. Ancient stuff, it's one of those, uh, might be. A lot of might be. <laughs> this is our best guess. Yeah. So what they found at uh, the city that was eventually known as Hattusha, uh, or Hattusha, there's a whole bunch of different pronunciations because ancient languages, okay? Yeah. Uh, they, Hit city. Yeah. They found the city's library. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the great thing about ancient writing in the Near East is that they use these clay tablets to write on. The thing that clay does is that it turns into pottery, and pottery is hard to get rid of, especially when it's like a thick tablet of fired clay. So, yeah, they have basically the entire library and archives of this empire. Because they're figuring that and this the is entire the library was filled with complaints against one baker <laughs> about that one copper merchant. All right, it was a copper merchant. Yeah, who the entirety of Babylon knew was scamming them. <laughs> oh God, there. Okay, listeners, there is this entire saga about this fucking copper merchant from Babylon who was scamming everybody with poor quality copper. It's great because he kept all of his fucking receipts. (laughs) (laughs) He kept all of his hate mail. Oh my god. (laughs) People were petty then as they are now. It is the equivalent of an Uber driver printing off and framing all the one-star reviews that they get. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, these archaeologists have found the library. And it's all written in cuneiform, which uh, has already been deciphered. And at the time, the most commonly used language was Akkadian, which is the language of, um, not the Sumerians, I think it was the Assyrians. So Akkadian at the time was like how we use English nowadays as like the language to for international anything. Okay. Yeah. Like diplomats use English now. Back in the day, it used to be French. You go further and further back, there's various other lingua francos out there. Yeah. Um, but a lot of these were also written in a language nobody knew what it was. Like it, it looked like gibberish. Hmm. They're like, hmm. So years later, after some study and decipherment, one of the guys was looking at it and he notices a word, wa otter, and an idea gets into his head. So he starts going through all the different words and just. He eventually realizes this is an Indo-European language. This is a language related to English. This is the pan-Indo-European root language. (laughs) Not exactly, but holy shit. Pretty close. This is an Indo-European language. Dang. Yeah. Oh my god. That that must have been the tightest shit, though, when he figures it out. Like, you're just (laughs) studying this thing, and it's like, oh, hey, these sound like water. Wait, this is water. (laughs) 
Yeah, because like the text basically said, now you take the water and now you eat the bread. And that's how we figured it out. It's it's an ancient Hittite adage. It says, let's get this bread. <laughs> so, yeah. The actual time that Yuri gets to uh, the Hittite Empire is during its heyday, during the glory years, the best time when it was at its biggest. And it had a oh, very... Oh, wow, we're talking about a manga. Yeah. <laughs> and it had a very, very fraught rivalry with Egypt. And Egypt wasn't doing too hot, because uh, she gets there... But they're in the desert. They had to be hot. <laughs> well, anyway... Hey, remember the mummy episode? Well, Yuri shows up just after Akhenaten kicked the bucket. No, she wasn't. Uh, she came right after Tutankhamun died without an heir. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. Because that is a major plot arc. Because Chie Shinohara, the mangaka, loves history. And I love a good succession crisis. Yeah, the there's actually a couple succession crises in here. I think I've said this before. I got a degree in history. I'm a major history nerd. I'm trying to get into archiving, which is like the super nerdy side of being a historian. Because Maximum I'm... history. Yeah. And uh, one of my favorite YouTubers out there is Nick Hodges, who hosts a series called History Buffs, where he reviews historical movies. And one of his big things is that directors and writers... Anybody involved in historical fiction or representing a historical event shouldn't view history as the enemy. Too many times, writers seem to think that history is somehow inconveniencing them in telling a good story. And I'm like, if you actually did your fucking homework, you would have found that, oh yeah, the story's way better than you thought it was. But it clashes with my headcanon, Lindsay. Oh, stuff it up your arse. <laughs> uh, so, anyway... Yuri, she shows up during uh, the heyday of the, of the Hittite Empire, back when they were doing great, Egypt wasn't doing so so hot, and uh, she gets romanced by a whole bunch of various historical figures, also because of where she came out. Okay, so when she arrives, she pops out of a sacred well in Hattusha, one that is dedicated to Ishtar, the goddess of uh, sex and war. Woo, boy! Oh, Good job, teenage girl. Yeah. Like, (laughs) Ishtar is a pretty good goddess to be associated with. Yeah. Yeah. Not one to be fucked with. Um, Babylonians kind of did her dirty because, well, uh, there's... Just look up Ishtar in your own time. She's got a rather weird past. I mean, most Babylonian mythology can be summed up as all the gods are evil and nothing is worth anything. Yeah. Yeah, like, we rag on the Greek gods all the time, but... Welcome to ancient Babylon. We have monetized nihilism. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Because, like, no matter how good you are in life, your only purpose was to serve the gods, and when you die, you went kind of... You went to basically, like, this muddy plain and just sat there. Like, at least with later civilizations, they had, like, oh, yeah, if you do heroic things, you're going to go to, like, this really great, awesome place, like the Elysian Fields or Valhalla, the most metal place ever. All you do is fight and drink, and there's a goat that lactates milk. Or, not milk. Lactates beer. It's strange. The place that invented heavy metal also has the most heavy metal mythology. Maybe there's a connection. Yeah. (laughs) 
those scandies are onto something. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so back to Red River, this is basically a reverse harem historical insert self-fanfic. Yeah, and it's great. Yeah, oh yeah, that's super valid. I applaud the author, the mangaka, for doing this. Yeah, because, like, she actually did her homework, the characters are really likable, the art is usually good, good to great, actually, though at times... I, I went through some of the some of the issues I have I've got and um there's a couple uh yaoi hands at times. <laughs> <laughs> the manga industry requires like a lot of content to be pumped out fairly quickly, so Yeah, it's that's pretty forgivable. Yeah. And I imagine that like these hands aren't to the degree of like legitimate yaoi hands where they are the palms are the size of the person's head. Yeah, it's not that bad. It's only once in a while anyway. Um, and to be fair, the style is a pretty, like, mid-90s, very detailed and flowy sort of look. Like, you know what when you see it. It's hard to describe, but like... No, I can picture it in my head. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. They're, they're a little bit noodly. Yeah, a little bit noodly, but like very pretty. I know, boys, there are a lot of flowers. But, you know, it's a shoujo manga. There has to be just like flowers bursting all over the place, just everywhere. <laughs> okay, does anyone do that thing where like when they fall in love with someone, flowers burst out of their throats? No. There's a lot Apparently, of- that's a really common thing in fan fiction. I don't know if it's even like exists in actual mediums, but in fan fiction, apparently, that happens a lot. Like you fall in love with someone, and then you just start coughing up flowers. Huh. Okay. And I just found this out. I completely missed all of those. Yeah, that might be a dojinshi thing. Oh, maybe. Yeah. So anyway, the main plot points. Does anyone this- get the sweet nosebleeds? That is such a shonen thing. Like. <laughs> I rarely ever saw that in my shoujo mangas. Okay, yeah. so shoujo tropes, it's all going to be flowers and sparkles, lens flares, bubbles. Yeah, surprisingly high amounts of action. <laughs> Does Yuri ever get to wield a sword? Yes. In fact, it's a Hell very yes. important character point for her. Because she defeats an arc villain, um, not exactly by stabbing him, but through some clever use of said sword. And also a bit of an interesting history lesson right there, because Chie Shinohara likes to throw in her fun history fact that I found out about uh, the ancient world. So the Bronze Age is called the Bronze Age for a reason. The most predominantly used metal alloy at the time was... Tinfoil. Bronze is a mixture of copper and tin. Oh, hey, I'm half right. Yeah, so copper, super plentiful in Europe. Like, you could basically, like, kick over a rock and there's fucking copper. Um, the big thing, though, to get your hands on was tin. Tin is not that common on Earth. Like The atomic symbol for tin is SN, right? Yeah. Does that stand for, like, super not common? Uh, it might be from the Latin name for tin. Snickerdoodle. <laughs> okay, so now I have to ask what we call tin foil, but, like, interchangeably with aluminum foil. Those are two different elements. Yeah, uh, because... Pretty much all tin foil is now aluminum foil. Because aluminum is way easier to get. Yeah, that must be. Yeah. Dang, but can you imagine... Like, okay, I think these days we call it aluminum foil pretty consistently, at least on the packaging. Yeah. 
But can you imagine like a Bronze Age person? Like they land in like the 60s <laughs> and they see all this tinfoil just in a supermarket and they'd lose their shit. Oh, yeah. Why do you have the super rare thing? You must be so rich. They just rate it. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, bronze is the most commonly used alloy. You had to go fairly far afield to get tin. But people knew how to work iron. And that's because Anatolia in particular is full of iron. On the north coast, there's like loads and loads of beaches that have basically iron sand. And oh, cool. Yeah. So they figured out how to extract the iron from the sand and turn it into metal objects. Now, people didn't use a lot of iron at the time because it was... It took longer to make, um, to like get into the shapes that you wanted. Um, it wasn't as strong as bronze. It had to be heated to higher temperatures. It was just a pain in the butt. Until people realized that at a certain temperature, like it became a lot stronger than bronze. It held an edge a lot better. Because uh, when you heat up iron to very high temperatures, carbon gets added. And when you add carbon, you get steel. Ah. And in the first arc of this manga, Yuri beats the uh, bad guy by basically, uh, he's standing on top of a wall and she goes low and manages to break a chunk of the wall off. Thus, he falls to his death. And she realizes, this isn't a bronze sword. This is a steel sword. Ooh, the intrigue. Yeah. While Yuri is standing on top of this wall, and she's looking at the sword, and she's realizing what she's got, down below, everybody is like, they see the light glinting off of it, because this is like, it had been night, it's now dawn, and they're like, is that the morning star? Is that the morning star? No, that's a girl! And they're like, oh my god, it's Ishtar! Because the morning star is also Venus, and it's associated with Ishtar. <laughs> so yeah, there's so much stuff that happens to her that like reinforces everybody thinking that she's fucking Ishtar that after a while she just gets called Yuri Ishtar all the time. So No relation to Marek Ishtar. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Yuri is like a kind sweet girl. She's, you know, usual Japanese high school student and all that, and she gets just thrust into the situation. She proves she she grows up a lot. She proves herself worthy of being called Yuri Ishtar, even though she's not as wrathful as it as actual Ishtar. But as I said, Ishtar is a complicated person. She's more like Astarte. Yeah. You know, the cool version. Yeah, the chill version. Yeah. When I say cool, I mean, like, she took the chill pills a lot. <laughs> yeah. Another big thing that happened, she ends up becoming the, well, concubine is the word that they use because she's... Uh, She's a quasi-wife for a long time to her main love interest, uh, Kale, a.k.a. Marcelli II, uh, who eventually, by the midway point through the manga, he becomes uh, king of the Hittite Empire. Because this is where, know, where one of the first succession crises happens. No, the second, because they also have the whole Zenanza thing. I'll talk about Zenanza in a bit, because there's... We have receipts from that! <laughs> <laughs> so anyway um when Yuri arrives the ruler of the Hittite empire is a dude called Shubilulima he was one of the more he did a lot of expanding of the empire I say Shubilulima sometimes it's pronounced Shubilulima again this is an ancient language that nobody speaks anymore yeah just a lot of guesswork yeah so he's in charge 
he's late middle ages. Uh, he's got a whole bunch of grown sons. And uh, Marshall Lee, who's referred to as Kale. I... Okay, so there's a thing called Ragnall names, uh, where a king or a queen can take on a name that is uh, separate from their actual like usual call name. So the most recent example is uh, King George VI, because he was originally named Albert, the Duke of York. Oh, but he got to pick his own name when he... When he became king after his uh, older brother, Edward VIII, abdicated. He decided to go with George because George sounds more British. Even though he had a younger brother named George, but we don't talk about that. I'm the better George. <laughs> and theoretically, William could do that when he takes the throne, too. Yeah. Would Elizabeth have been able to do that, too? Yeah, she was offered the option, but she's like, Elizabeth is a perfectly good name for a queen. And the last Elizabeth was pretty popular, too, yeah. so. So, why should I? Exactly. Yeah. And usually, like, with the British royal family, it would be, like, from any of your several middle names. So, like, in the future, the little Prince George, when he becomes king, he could be either King George, or he could be Alexander or Louis. And in the case of Alexander, what's interesting, because when the crowns of Scotland and England were combined... They basically made like a kind of house rule where if there should be a future monarch that uses a name that was exclusively used by the Scottish monarchs, they would just number from the last person who had that name was king. Yeah, cool royal fact for the day. Yeah, fun royal fact. Names are meaningless. Also with Japan, you have the uh, the era names that, yeah, that get the... propped up when the previous empire abdicates and that's like... Or dies and... Yeah, well, yeah, it's it was has always been on death that the era is named yeah and but now just recently with um akihito yes akihito because he's abdicating oh thank god not because he's a bad king but because like he's been wanting to abdicate for a while his health is yeah. not that great yeah like i oh see see now i i got into a whole thing on the japanese succession crisis because so akihito is abdicating at the end of april and then naruhito will become the new emperor yeah so he'll also get a new name too Yes, and they already decided that. But the thing is, so with those names, first off, they're like posthumous names. So when Akihito dies, then he'll be referred to as Emperor Heisei. Yeah. But it's very uncouth to refer to him as Emperor Heisei right now because they're basically saying, well, you're already dead, so whatever. Yeah. Like, no, <laughs> that, that's rude. a dick move. <laughs> um, just like how Naruhito, you shouldn't be referring to him as Emperor Reiwa, which is going to be his era name starting the 1st of May. Yeah. Um, but then the Japanese had a succession crisis because there's Naruhito and his two brothers. But then, like, for 20 years, there were no male heirs born after Akihito's sons. Yeah, because in Japan, only their rule is that it's a male exclusive promoter. Exactly. Um, as of, like, their more recent constitution. Yeah, and they were, they were, like, just a few steps away from making it the... Male preferred, which is, um... Male preferred promature is like they still would put a son before any daughters, regardless of birth order, but a daughter could still inherit should there not be an older brother or a, yeah. or any brother. Yeah, and they were about to change it to uh, have it be that way. They're like just a few days away, I think, and then the um, the youngest son of Akihito gave birth to well, he didn't give birth, but like his wife gave birth to a son. Yeah. And they're like, oh, okay, well, now we don't have to worry about this because now we have a male heir. And so they just scrapped the whole thing. And a lot of people were pissed about yeah. it. And it's like, just wait until this kid grows up, okay? We might be yeah. in another situation. 
it's it's not just a matter of who sits on the throne, but it's also like a whole bunch of women are leaving the line of succession. Yeah. Because there's no benefits for them. Yeah, and also like I think upon marriage, like princesses lose a lot of their uh, titles and all that. Yeah, if they marry outside of the royal line, then they're not in line for the chrysanthemum throne anymore. Yeah, which sucks. Whereas the British royal family, okay, they weren't the first to adopt absolute prongature. That goes to the Scandi royal families, but they also had like a shit ton of girls anyway, so it's like, fuck it. Same with the Dutch. The Dutch, they had their first king in a century with Willem Alexander. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, Japan... Like, Japan's, the problem that we're facing is, oh, we don't have any boys to put on the throne. But because they kind of discarded their plans to change the succession rules, now, a few years, like, probably not for a while, but, like, in a few decades, they might have a new crisis, which is, oh, we have no humans to put on the throne, because they all left the line of succession. Yeah. But Japan's pretty slow when it comes to changing stuff anyway. Yeah. Speaking of changing things, Lindsay, you have like 10 minutes left to explain how you would actually reboot this because oh! this entire show so far has been a history lesson. It's been a very good history lesson, but... Been me talking about history and giving a big old lecture. Um, <laughs> Fuck. We, we've, we, we drifted pretty far away from the premise. Yeah. <laughs> the entire conceit of what we yeah. do here. Just me gushing about history and all that. So anyway... uh. Most of the arcs of the series follow, like, actual historical events. So you have the first succession crisis with Chupilu Lima because his initial heir dies of a plague. Like, he dies of a plague, then Arawanda suddenly dies of a plague. Um, so there's a whole, like, skip over this guy because he d- isn't really suited th- for the throne, so we'll go with Kale. But then there's a problem with uh, their stepmom, uh, Queen Nakia, who's the main villain. Uh, she's a Babylonian princess. She's based on a real person. Most of the historical peoples are based on real people. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Shupilu Lima, he had been married to this one queen uh, in the series that call her Hati. I don't know if that's her actual name. Um, and he ended up basically kicking her out so he could marry this hot young Babylonian princess for a treaty. Harsh. The thing with um, Hittite culture is that they take oaths like, ridiculously seriously to the point where like gods will intervene and cause problems. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so in real life history, this Babylonian princess came, and because the, uh, position of king and queen are actually treated as separate, like, they're joint, but they're, they got, like, separate tenures, basically. Um, yeah. So they're both lifelong positions. So a new king comes to the throne, his chief wife, because polygamy was also a thing, uh, can't become queen in her own right until the previous queen either abdicates or dies. Okay. Yeah, this is a big thing at the end of the series, um, because Yuri has to become queen at some point. Okay. Yeah. So is Yuri like changing history, or not is she really. trying to keep it it's on track? It's more like a stable time loop, I guess, because it's also far enough back in history that it might affect things. But like, again, this is stuff that's happening three thousand years ago. It's, so it's not going to have huge repercussions on the world at large. Yeah, because so much stuff has happened in between that. So, okay, so Yuri, like, she keeps it on track, but then she realizes that she is, she was history all along. I don't even know if they've really thought about that, but we could add that to the ad- to the adaptation, because I want this to be, like, an anime adaptation. Like, the art style's great. Okay. Yeah. So, anyway, yeah, like, a straight a- uh, anime adaptation, um, with pacing adjustments, too, um... Because it was this one anime adaptation, I forget what it was, but it was super bad because, like, 
one episode was equal to like one volume of the manga. Oh, dang. Yeah, so the pacing was just atrocious. I can imagine, holy. Yeah, so like... That'd be a mess. Yeah, so like, you know, follow the arcs, please? Mm-hmm. And the arcs are interesting. So like, uh, you have the whole Yuri adjusting herself to uh, the Asian Hittites, you have got the First Succession Crisis, you got... Um, before that, there was a war with uh, the Matani who were actually a fairly powerful uh, kingdom to the south of the Hittites. Uh, they were also famous for their horses. They had some of the like best horse trainers out there. Uh, one of the main characters, Kakuli, he's originally from the, but from the Mitanni. Um, he wrote one of the first treaties on horse training out there. Um, specifically, a type that is actually used nowadays for like long distance and endurance horse racing. Hmm. Yeah. And it wasn't like somebody read the read like a, a translated copy of this treatise. It's more like uh, later on when people really started to get into that sort of horse racing, uh, the endurance racing, they figured, oh, yeah, you do like these uh, workup sort of things where you go like certain distance. You got to be very particular about the food and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, it's, it's really cool that he thought about this 3000 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, there's that. There's the whole Zananza thing, which is based around so Tutankhamun dies. He has yes. no heir. We have found the two little fetuses that probably were his miscarried children. Aw. Yeah, that were probably birthed from Moon, and they were like half-brother and sister, I think. Yeah, the incest was really bad at the time with uh, the 18th dynasty. And um... So that left basically Moon, the only like legitimate person who could rule Egypt, but she needed a husband to do that because Egyptian politics. It's yeah. Even though Egypt was actually one of the more forward-thinking civilizations out there, like women could own property and bequeath it, and they could also like act as jurors and witnesses at trials. Hmm. They actually had a lot of power. Awesome. Yeah. So like in ancient times, be an Egyptian lady. Um. Goals. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she had written a series of letters to uh, Shibilu Lima begging him for one of his sons because he had a crap ton of sons anyway. Um, Can I just borrow one of these, please? Yeah. And uh, Zananza, who's one of the main characters of the series, he gets chosen to go down to Egypt to marry Angusana Moon because, hey, it'll be great to have a Hittite on the throne of Egypt. Be great for us. Great for the empire. But he never makes it. Oh, no. Nobody knows exactly why. Um, the historical records seem to indicate that like he was ambushed and killed by some rivals of his from Egypt. Because, you know, everybody wants the throne of Egypt. Egypt was the most powerful kingdom at the time. Like, even if they were going through a lot of issues, like, they were the breadbasket of this region. Like, food is probably more important than gold. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, he gets gat. Yuri's also in there, so she sees what happens, and uh, they eventually, uh, the Hittites do eventually go to war with Egypt. Uh, we meet the founder of the 19th Dynasty, one user Ramses, who's the grandfather, who's going to be the grandfather of Ramses the Great, uh, one of the most badass kings of ancient Egypt, like a genuinely cool guy. 
Um, nice. He's also like one of those like great conquering kings who like he did all of his conquering in his youth and then he managed to like chill out for the next sixty years. <laughs> <laughs> and given that the average life expectancy in Egypt was like thirty, that is like yes, we have no no other king than Ramses the god, <laughs> god emperor Ramses, because there were also god emperors basically. Yeah, yeah. as you do. I gotta ask, does Yuri ever get home or care about getting home? She does care for a long time and she agonizes it. This is a big uh, through plot plot of the entire series is Yuri and Kale trying to get Yuri home for at least halfway-ish? Until about halfway? Because the thing about this well, they figure that she can go back with uh, various magics and all that, but it has to be at a particular time of year when the morning star is above this particular well. Like, Rice is above this well. And that only happens a couple times in the year, and they keep missing it, keep missing it, and eventually Yuri is like, I am too invested in the Hidden Empire to leave at this point. Yeah. I, like, that's some she, good character development. Yeah, and like, she regrets not being able to go back home to because her she acknowledges like my parents and my sisters are probably at all sorts of ends wondering where the fuck I've gone because she basically left without a trace. Yeah. But I can't leave. Like it's going to cause too many problems here now. Hmm. Yeah. That's a real interesting uh, predicament. Yeah. Which is a lot better than most isekai where the protagonist doesn't seem to give a shit about, you know, family. I get it, Japan, you've got issues, okay? But, like, at least fucking think, like, oh, crap. They're not gonna know where I've gone. They're gonna become, like, the subject of, like, some true crime podcast. Oh, no. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. There's an actual series called Up and Vanish that I listen to. It's all about missing persons cases. And as much as we wish, they probably didn't all end up in the ancient Hittite Empire. Yeah. So in the adaptation, would she get home after everything's said and done? Well, in the manga, she stays. Uh, she becomes queen, along with um, Kale, after many a child. And so she th- that's it? Would you change that? No, I actually like that. Hmm. Like, it is, like, it's not fair to her family and all that, but I think, like, as... As the story progresses, like, she does get very invested in what happens, and she she becomes a religious figure, she becomes a political figure. Like, if she left the Hittites, they that would be, That could cause like, more damage than her staying. Yeah. It would be, like, our one of our most important goddesses has decided to abandon us. Yeah. And, like, what if it came during a bad time for them? Or, like, what if a bad time followed her? Mm-hmm. Ooh, Yeah. Maybe she, like, leaves, like, she writes a clay tablet explaining everything and just leaves it for someone to find. Yeah, hoping that somebody finds it. they're going through all those archives and they find, like, why is this written in kanji? (laughs) That's one of the final episodes. You see, like, some archaeologist at, um, the the Germans are still, like, the most on top of, um, of the study of the Hittites. So someone at like a university in like Berlin or Munich is going through some of the clay tablets. And then it's like, was ist los? (laughs) 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 Like they could just be like, you could like 
I don't, I don't know. They'd be like, why is this written in Japanese? Dun, dun, dun. Oh, oh, it could. So the whole series could begin with like her on a school trip to the museum and they're at the Hittite exhibit and they see that tablet <laughs> and they're like, oh, what does this mean? Uh, hey, hey, look, this looks like your name. Isn't that weird? And, and then like she goes back and then she writes the tablet and then shows up at the museum and the parents are like, oh my gosh, our daughter's a time traveler. This is <laughs> Outlander! Really weird to deal with. <laughs> I made a bit better closure for her family. Yeah. Yeah, like I, I understand her, her perspective, yeah. but that like let the parents understand too. Yeah. Oh my god, she actually leaves the, like the contact info just in case somebody who isn't her parents finds this. <laughs> <laughs> and here's my dad's hotmail account. <laughs> yeah, because this was created in the nineties. Ah, oh, we can adapt it to the two thousands. We yeah, we can scooch the time frame up a bit. Yeah. So this is my parents' cell phone cell phone numbers, and this is their address. And then some later archaeologist is looking at this and is like, like, first they would have to get, like, uh, their buddy from university who actually studied Japanese to translate this. And then they would, like, Google the, Google the fucking thing and realize, oh my god, this is an actual house. Type it into Babblefish. Either this is a really weird hoax. Wild. <laughs> yeah. Because we gotta throw in some sort of weird jokey jokes in here. Yeah. Is there anything else you can think to add to this adaptation? Because it sounds pretty solid just based on the source material. Yeah. And I'm like, why wasn't this adapted back in the 2000s? God damn it. Ah! Because it was it was made only for you. Lindsay, I, you actually went to the past and wrote this yourself. <laughs> So that you could get into manga as a child. <laughs> Psych, I have been Chie Shinohara the entire time. <laughs> and oh my god, Chie Shinohara must have been like a fucking time traveler or something because she also wrote like a later manga that was all about the rise of Ruxalana, the main wife of Suleiman the Magnificent uh, back in the fifth, uh, 16th century during the Ottoman huh. Empire. And one of the most popular soap operas right now is called Magnificent Century, which is all about the reign of Suleiman the Magnificent. Okay, so uh, I'm going to go check the historical records to see if I can find any more evidence of time-traveling mangakas. <laughs> While I do that, we're going to cut over to a quick friendship promo. Welcome to Very Random Encounters, where we play tabletop RPGs and randomly determine as much as possible. Remember playing with Legos and swapping the people's heads and limbs to create horrid abominations that God forgot? Our show is what it would be like if those rejected attempts at the human form had to go out and save the day. We turn the nonsense into a story with a nice message, like how friendship is stronger than a mind-controlled goblin jazz band. Hey, that's a thing that really happened. Find Very Random Encounters wherever you randomly determine to listen to podcasts. And we're back, and I didn't find anything. But to be <laughs> fair, I do not speak Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, not anymore. Yeah. I took some classes at university, and then I fell out of it because I had to redo my whole schedule. Maybe I'll get back into that yeah. one day. And, you know, for the degree, you only needed, like, two classes in a language not that is not English. Yeah, no, and I took the two, I took the two required classes, but it's like, it was so many years ago and not comprehensive enough, yeah. so, like, nothing stuck with me. And you crammed one during the summer, right? Yeah, it was like the express course was like the equivalent of a full year's worth of Japanese pushed into three weeks. Oh, God. I guess it's, like, the course that you take when 
you decide, yeah, I'm going to go on vacation to Japan. I don't know a single word of Japanese. Yeah, basically. <sighs> hey, if you guys want to give us $3,000 a month, though, maybe I'll have time to go back to university and learn comprehensive Japanese again. <laughs> Patreon.com slash not if I reboot you first. We have a selection of tiers. Well, we have two tiers. We have a $1 tier that gets you a shout out on our podcast every week. And we have a $5 tier that gets you stuff like the ability to vote on polls for upcoming People's Choice episodes, the ability to listen to the weekly episodes two days early, and the ability to listen to some bonus episodes, which we're probably going to brainstorm what we can do for some of those after we finish recording this. And we would like to thank Charlie, who's currently our only Patreon, for giving the time and money to donating to us. We really appreciate that, Charlie. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, anyways, Lindsay, where can you be found on the internet? I'm at lindsaym476 um, on Twitter, and from there you can get to all my other social media bullshits. Tanner, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at SparkyUpstart. You can find me on Instagram at SparkyYoungUpstart. It's just occurring to me, I have not posted to Instagram in a while. Yeah, that's kind of important. I mean, it's important for us to post about the show on Instagram, not for me. <laughs> yeah, and to be fair, it's mostly to let other people know that we're alive. Yes. <laughs> which I mainly accomplished through Twitter. Anyways, you can find this very show on Twitter at N-I-I-R-Y-F-Pod. Those are the letters for Not If I Reboot You First. It is pronounced Nerif. And you can find this show on Instagram at Not If I Reboot You First, all one word. The hashtag is N-I-I-R-Y-F, also pronounced Narf. And you can also email us at notifyrebootyoufirst at gmail.com. You can send us your comments, critiques, and criticisms if you have any ideas for future reboots we could do. If you have any evidence of time-traveling mangakas, make sure you send it to us first before anyone else, because we'll break the story. <laughs> if you'd like to be a guest like we've had in the past, then you can also ask permission for that, and we will sort out a time for you then, and you get to choose what your topic is. But don't tell us, just give us a hint. We like surprises. And please uh, subscribe, rate, and review on uh, your various podcast catching services, especially iTunes, because that algorithm is a cruel and distant starlight god. Um, Lindsay, it's still your turn. Oh, yes. So I guess we'll stick in my wheelhouse of historical fiction with also a dash of fantasy this time uh, set in Victorian London. It's a bit gothy. Ooh. And there's a lot of Tennyson going on. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. I'll see what that is next week. But until then, you guys... We don't have a sign-off catchphrase. I always want to say a sign-off catchphrase, but we don't have one. Yeah. Keep your stick on the ice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.